Good afternoon. The wrath of God is coming. The enemies of God will be moaning. The friends or sons and daughters of God will be singing. The question is, which one are you going to be? Plus, a special message for the graduates among us. I'm Pastor Tim. It's Wednesday, 12 noon. Welcome to the Deep End. This is the Bible. It is the most loved, the most read, the most scrutinized, the most cherished, the most criticized, the most enjoyed, the most studied, the most hated book in the entire world. And this is the Deep End Podcast, where we talk about the Bible in modern day language. And so this year, we're going through the book of Revelation, the most requested book to be studied by Christians in America, and the least desired to be taught by pastors in America. On the Deep End Podcast, we dive deep into to the Bible to help you know what God has to say through this book. Thank you for joining us. This is The Deep End. Welcome, everybody, to Wednesday at 12 noon live on The Deep End. I am glad to be back here teaching the book of Revelation. I have thoroughly enjoyed the past couple of weeks with my wife, Cheryl, and Chris McEwen here on the podcast doing question and answers with you. By the way, question and answers are not out of line going forward on The Deep End. I love your questions. I appreciate them, and I want more of them. So always feel free to text us your questions, 508-933. One three six six. What's I butchered that number? We'll get the number for you on the screen. Three one six nine three three three. Ha! There we go. Five zero eight three one six nine three three three. You can text us anonymously through that number, or you can just ask in the comments section below on Facebook Live or on YouTube Live. However, you're watching this message. Uh, through your personal device or computer. I'm so happy that you're here. Hey, in the comments below, let us know. Let me know where you're watching from, uh, city and state, or room in the house, whatever you feel comfortable with, or what, what version automobile, what make and model, and year. Yes, not the VIN. That's too personal. We're so glad to have you here. My name is Tim Hatch. I host this podcast every Wednesday, and Today, we're at episode 25 of season number two, two seasons almost complete for the Deep End podcast, going through the book of Revelation. We will get to the book of Revelation in just a moment, but guess what? It is May. It is May, what is it? May 22nd, and it is graduation time. Lots of graduates out there. Lots of high school graduates, lots of college graduates, or grad school graduates, uh, or doctoral, uh, I guess you would call those doctoral doctors now. But we are so glad that you are completing your education or whatever section of education you are completing. So proud of you. And I know that a lot of people are going to say that they're proud of you. But I want you to know that I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. So congratulations. I'm praying for you. And the reason why I'm praying for you is there's a lot of bad news out there for you that could discourage you, that could make you feel like, what's the point? I've got all this education. Maybe if you're a college graduate, you're thinking, I spent all this money I don't have on an education that I don't even know what I'm going to do with right now. And maybe you're feeling frustrated. Or maybe you're feeling just unmotivated. Or maybe just tired. And you want to take the whole summer off. Well, I want to warn you about the times in which you live. I want to give you some advice. And I hate to do this. i got to talk to my friends, the millennials. Now, I have had a bad reputation in the past of picking on millennials. I don't want to pick on you. I want to help you. And I want to speak to you, younger persons, as your older brother. Evidently, the oldest millennial out there is 38 years old. I don't know who he or she is, but <laughs> that's the reference age for the 
high end of the millennial generation. I don't know how young you go to. I think it's somewhere around 21. So some of you are graduating college still. Most of you are out of college. But you are now considered the largest workforce in America. Actually, millennial and Gen Z, whatever we call that generation after millennials. You two generations combined are now the largest workforce in America, and we need you. We need you to do what evidently research is showing you are not presently doing, and that is we need you to grow up. We need you to grow up. So this is Tough Love today here on the Deep End Podcast, and I hope that you stay. I hope you don't give up on the podcast just because I'm going to give you some tough love right off the bat, but I feel that is necessary for a generation that needs some godly wisdom, some grown-up advice. And I don't want to talk to you as a parent. I want to talk to you as an older brother. I'm 42, okay? I'm 42. I'm only four years older than the oldest millennials out there. So I'm close to your age. And I want to tell you from my experience that there's nothing better than growing up. There is nothing better than growing up. So I ran across this survey. It's called the Deloitte Global Millennial Survey is a 2019 report based on the views of 13,416 millennials questioned across 42 countries. So it's not just American millennials, it's the whole global population of millennials. The survey was conducted from December 4th, 2018 through January 18th, 2019, and it proved some things about the millennial generation that basically come down to this. You are not presently doing what life is all about. At least the vast majority of you are not doing what life is all about. What is life all about? You ever wonder what that is? We all think about what's the meaning of life? What's the point? What should I be doing with my life? Here's what you should be doing. You should be starting a family. You should be getting married. Uh, Actually, let me reverse that order. You should be getting married. Then you should be starting a family, having children, raising children. Like it or not, this is what we're made to do. This is why sex is so fun, okay? It's meant to feel good so that you do it, but you do it so that you produce children and then you raise those children responsibly like a grown-up. And I'm going to just tell you something, that we have a problem in this generation where we have made sex a sport. We have made sex a pastime instead of something that we should enjoy with one person for the rest of our lives so that we actually get moving in life. See, it's supposed to work like this, young people. It's supposed to work like this. You enjoy sex so much that you get married to somebody and you say, hey, I want unlimited, free, guilt-free sex with you for the rest of my life so that I can produce children and then raise them with you and then we can, gra- and then we can one day uh, retire and have a live life and enjoy our grandchildren and possibly, if God allows, our great-grandchildren and then die peaceably in our beds, hopefully, if God's grace allows. That doesn't always happen. I get it. There's tragedies. There's trouble. There's sudden death, sudden illness. It's tragic out there. It's a world that's without a lot of, you know, firm uh, realities that are inevitable. I get it. But please, don't let what may happen bad stop you from doing what is good. And I speak to you again as an older brother because I've been there and I've done that. I've been young and now I'm getting to my middle ages. And I'm telling you, my life has never been better. 42 years old, I'm a pastor of a great church. I have three children and a beautiful wife. And I'm making a lot of money compared to where I was when I was 21 years old. And if you do a lot of the things that you should do in life, you too can get there. And it will happen. But it's not going to happen without you bucking the system, bucking the trend of what the present generation is probably kind of telling you to do. And that is to take life easy. So this, this study, Deloitte Global Millennial Survey, has produced some alarming results. Uh, According to the study, aspirations among millennials are kind of the opposite of what they should be. 
Uh, having children buying homes and other traditional signals of adulthood or quote-unquote success markers do not top the list of millennials' ambitions. Generally, millennials believe their ambitions are within reach, but those ambitions are mostly the top ambition among millennials is to travel the world. 57% of millennials say traveling the world is their number one aspiration. Number two aspiration is being wealthy at 52%. If you're going to, I'm just going to just break down those two top tier aims. If you're going to travel the world as a young person, you immediately limit your potential to be wealthy because <laughs> travel costs money. I know we have this romantic idea of let's, let's strap a backpack on and just go over to Europe and walk around, but it costs money. It costs money to eat. It costs money to get a ride somewhere. It costs money to fly somewhere. You got to fly to Europe. You can't swim. You got to fly or you got to take a long ship ride. So that costs money. And you got to be careful about this. Traveling the world, sure, that's a great thing. Do it later in life, after the kids are out of the house. My parents did this. My parents got, our, got their three children through high school, through college. Then they sold their house, bought an RV, and traveled around the country for a solid year. They loved every minute of it. But they did it later in life when they had the means to do it, when they could do it with peace and contentment and not setting up the rest of their life for failure because they spent all their money traveling the world on a whim. No, life could work like this, but put the right priorities in order. 57% want to travel, 52% want to be wealthy. Those things don't go together in your young age. 49% of millennials, this is the lowest in generations, 49% of millennials hope to own a home. 49%, less than half of you want to own a home. Less than half of you want to make a positive community impact. And then 40%, less than 40% of millennials want to have children or a family. Less than 40% of 38-year-old people want to have children or a family. What is going on? You are not growing up. I hate to tell you, but these are the things that we are made to do. So I've got some, I've got some advice for you. And here's why I'm going to give you the advice. Because based on these aspirations, the results of your generation are not good. Uh... According to the studies, you are the poorest generation in 100 years at your age, and that is adjusted for inflation. You are making f about $10,000 less a year than your parents uh, at, their, at your age, adjusted for inflation wage rates there. So you are the poorest generation. You have the, mo you have the least amount of money or net worth in, uh, in the pre uh, of the previous three generations. You have the least amount of net worth at your age. And on top of this, you are waiting longer than any generation to have children and get married or get married and have children, that order. So I have to tell you some things. I have to speak to you. Again, older brother speaking. I, don't, I say older brother because I don't want you to think I'm dad lecturing you, okay? It's like having an older brother speak to you for a moment. So let me just say some things. I want to tell you that there is nothing better than graduating high school and getting on with your life and going to college or going to the workforce. And then if, if God allows or if God leads, you go to college and you graduate college, you move on and you get out of college and you go do something with your life and then you find someone to spend the rest of your life with and then you do that. You marry them and then you have children. And that's basically what I did and it worked out really well. That's what Michael over here has done. He's over here on the camera and it's working out pretty well. You're on the right track, aren't you? Enjoying your life? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, he loves it. And you know what? You can too. I know it sounds so old and fuddy-duddy. I know it sounds so old traditional and, oh, oh, isn't this just aligning with the patriarchy? 
Well, maybe it is, but maybe the patriarchy isn't as evil as you've been told it is. Maybe it's okay to be a husband and a father. Maybe it's okay to be a mother and, heaven forbid, a housewife. Oh my goodness, imagine the horror, right? These things that the culture tells you are so evil, so wrong. Maybe they're actually good things. I have found that when I listen to culture over God's word, it goes poorly for me every time. Maybe you need to stop listening to what people are telling you through Twitter. Maybe you need to stop listening to celebrities who have all the money in the world and all the sadness to go along with it and start listening to what God has said. What does God say, by the way, on page one of the Bible to Adam and Eve? He says, be fruitful, multiply. What is he saying? You too. I married you. Make babies. Fill the earth, subdue it. And, and what, what God is basically saying is this is good for creation. When people get married and have babies, it's good for the world. And so millennials, you want to make a positive impact on the world? And I guess, what is it? Only 46% of you do. Okay, well, if you do want to make a positive impact on the world, the greatest positive impact that you can make on the world is to raise good kids. How do you raise good kids? You stay married and you go to church together. You go to church together. You worship God together. You love Jesus, and you raise those kids in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, the fear and the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, it'll go well for you. So I look at my life, and I say, man, I got married at 24 years old, 24 years old, and I had a baby. My, my wife had our first child. I was 25 years old. She was 26. She is a year and two weeks older than me, and I never let her forget that. But I look at my wife, and I look at my children. And by the way, here's the other thing. Um, I'm just going to unpack some, some, some life lessons for you. You know, my wife has never looked more beautiful than she does right now. And I, I kid you not, this is true. I think that when you get married, you actually grow more attractive for each other and for yourself. I, I really believe the studies are out there too that shows that married men with children are more attractive than their single childless counterparts. And I think it's true for women too. Because when you're married, your spouse holds you accountable to your looks like this morning when I was getting dressed, my, my wife pointed out a couple things about my body that needed to be worked done. And, uh, you know, I could have gotten mad or I could have said, you know what? She sees me from the outside. And that's going to help me. That's going to motivate me to get better looking. And I want to take care of my body. I want to. I want to be the best version of me that I can be. And she's there to help me. And I'm there to help her. It goes both ways. And I look at my wife and I say, wow, she's gotten so much better looking than when I first married her. That's how it should work when you do life God's way. By the way, there's something you got to do to make that happen, you got to avoid fatty foods. Well, married partners help you do that. They kind of, hopefully, they correct each other. Say, hey, listen, let's stop eating like crap. Let's start eating right. You got to exercise. Also, you got to avoid cigarettes and vaping and marijuana and drugs and partying all night until 3 a.m. and then going to sleep and waking up at 3 p.m. Like those things you avoid once you get married because you know what? It gets old fast. And especially when you have kids, there's no chance of having that happen to you. So you have kids, you can't party, you can't smoke, you can't vape, you can't do drugs, you can't smoke marijuana. They hold you accountable to actually living healthier. This is why you end up looking better later in life. Do you know how often I see women? See, do you know how often I see girls from my past, whether on social media or on Facebook? And I'm not on Facebook, but I can search sometimes their profile pictures. And I look these girls up that I saw in high school school, I thought they were so beautiful. And now I look at them, and I'm like, yikes, yikes. They are not beautiful. And these are the party hardy girls from high school. I looked them up. I'm like, oh my Lord, time did not serve them well. Partying, celebrating, whatever, freedom, sex outside of marriage, all these things that the devil sells you as these really cool things that will lead to health and happiness are really lies. They're lies from the enemy that will actually destroy you. 
So I look at my wife, and we've been together now 18 years. She's better looking than ever. She's smarter than ever. I think I'm better looking than ever. I don't know if I'm smarter than ever, but I'll let her tell you that if she wants to. But the point is this, that doing life God's way, have, getting married, having children, being responsible is the best option. I understand that some of you are single. Some of you want to get married and you can't find somebody. But please don't lower your standards. Find someone who loves Jesus. And you got to do that by getting in church, getting in small group. And some of you are young, young ladies and you have a hard time finding a man. Well, maybe you need to go and walk up to the guy and say, hey, my name is so-and-so. Let's chat. Why don't you just make the first move? Why not? Who cares? Maybe they'll reject you. Move on to the next one. There's plenty of fish in the sea, but I know that it can be hard. And sometimes I think that women need to know this probably more than men. You know, some men are afraid to make the move, first move, so you make the first move. It's okay. That's, that's, that's the right way to forget about the patriarchy. Why don't you make the first move and see how it goes? And if he doesn't respond, if he doesn't open his heart to you, well, then move on. There's someone better for you. God has a better plan for you. But my point is you got to move on. There's another problem for the younger people among us. And I think i got to address the guys, so my younger brothers out there. I believe that you have been hindered by two great enemies of progress in your life. Number one, porn. And number two, video games. Porn and video games. You know what porn and video games do? They offer you cheap and shortcut substitutes to what's actually meaningful for your life. Pornography offers you the sexual gratification shortcut. Instead of aligning your life with one person for the rest of your life and enjoying sex within the bonds, bonds of holy matrimony, you are given the immediate gratification of unlimited, unnamed, unknown women available to you through the magic of digital photography. And this promises pleasure, and it leads to emptiness. We have scores of men who come in and talk to our church leadership here. They are hooked on this stuff, and they are hopeless and empty. They do not find fulfillment. It promises fulfillment. It ends in emptiness. So this stuff, it hinders you from doing what you should do because you've got the quick access over here or the long-term, harder choice of getting married and staying married and doing what is an adulthood, what adults should do. you got to do what is the hard thing because over the long haul, the hard thing will pay off in huge dividends. Uh, secondly, video games. Video games offer you conquest and success in the short term for things that really don't matter, but things that you should have in life by working hard and building a home and having property of your own. You know how many video games now today are based on building something? Like my, my son plays Fortnite all the time. I play Clash of Clans, and I like Clash of Clans, but nonetheless, there's so many video games that talk about building, 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 and you're building, constantly building, and you kind of even can put in money into these video games, and you build, 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 for what? For pixels. This is a cheap substitute for actually building a home, building a living, building a net worth. These are the things that matter in life. And now today, more guys than ever are falling for the cheap substitutes, which actually rob them of pursuing the true realities. It's time to grow up. And girls, I have a message for you. I believe that you are victims of the culture that has enabled young boys to stay perpetual adolescents. I believe that you are victims of the culture that has enabled young boys to stay perpetually adolescents. I also believe that you have to stop living with the guy, sleeping with the guy, and having sex with the guy without having a marriage with the guy. You keep letting it continue. If you help him be an adolescent, he will never grow up. He needs someone to say, enough. We're not doing this anymore. You have three weeks to propose to me or I'm moving on. I mean, seriously, it's time to put some pressure on these guys to grow up. And, he's, and if he says, you know what, forget you, I'm moving on. Well, then he's not worth it. And you are worth more than he is. 
So I just think it's time, it's time for younger people to start growing up. And I'm talking to Christians. I understand that non-Christians will totally disregard what I say. That's fine. That's fine. You're non-Christians. I'm talking to Christian brothers and sisters. Work hard in a culture that actually has enabled you to work lightly. And this is my last piece of advice. Inflated grades are a serious problem in Ivy League colleges today, Ivy League universities. There's a graph here up on the screen, and you'll see from 1950 to 2012, you'll see the inflation rates of grades at Ivy League universities. Brown, Columbia, Cornell, Dartmouth, Harvard, Pennsylvania, Princeton, and Yale. Look at how the trajectory goes from 1950 to 2012. It goes from about the grade, average grade point average was 2.5 in 1950. Now the average grade point average is around 3.5. And all the research shows that these are just inflated grades. They are not earned grades. They're inflated grades. You know why? Because a school gets more money, more grants, more federal grants, more, more donors from alumni, if they can show that their grade point averages are higher than they should have been. And so consequently, what happens is college graduates are graduating and they're actually dumber than they were uh, a generation ago, but they're, high, but they're getting higher grades for it. I heard of a research study that found out that uh, kids that are graduating high school know more about civil law, about how our government works, about just basic general knowledge than kids that are graduating college. Kids that graduate high school are smarter than kids that are graduating college. What's happening? The university system has become so corrupt, has become so corrupt, so enamored with things like gender studies, things like the LGBT civil rights fight, things like whether or not we should have transgender bathrooms in every building in America, things like should marijuana be legal or not, things that really don't matter things that really don't produce anything for culture, things that don't produce help for the community, profitable common good. They're concerned with those things over things that matter for your life and developing you into responsible citizens. Now, the reason why is because the people who are leading the Ivy League universities far and wide are children of the sexual revolution from the 1960s. They are the ones who cast off the old patriarchal forms and norms of society, such as moms and dads and children and households and the nuclear family that cast those off in favor of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and they grew up and they became college professors. Do you know why? Because they had no other skills. So they became college professors, and they, became, and they are now indoctrinating entire generations into how to do what they did, only they're not getting the same results. Why? Because those things over the long haul do not work. Those things that they pursued back in the 1960s do not produce anything of profit. And so I'm telling you, I'm, I'm just trying to give you some, some big brotherly advice. Do what's hard now so that it can pay off later. This is what the scripture teaches us. The scripture teaches us that if you do what's right in the hard times, when the hard times are over, you're going to actually be blessed way more than you were going into the hard times. James 1, 2-4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 5, 3 says, We rejoice in our sufferings. We do what's hard now, because we know that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. These are the benefits of doing what is hard when everybody else is doing what is easy. And so my final commendation to you is this. You need discipline to do what is necessary now for what is profitable later. You need to dig in. You need to make the hard choices. You need to stop following the cultural mantras of your age and listen to the word of God. Do what is necessary now, and you will be thankful later in life. I close with this for the Deep End News segment. Hebrews 12, 11 says, For the moment, all discipline, all discipline seems painful. 
rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There is a fruit coming to those who listen to God and let him discipline them in his ways. And I'm telling you, I'm living proof this can be yours as well. But you got to stop listening to culture start listening to God. So congratulations, graduates. Now, get busy growing up and it will go well with you. That's the Deep End News segment. We're going to go from here, hard right turn, into the book of Revelation. Okay, the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 15. Are you ready? I'm ready. Quick recap from episode 22. Why 22? We're on episode 25 because 23 and 24 with the deep end question and answers with my wife Cheryl about destination marriage. So episode 22, if you remember way back, we were talking about the four forces coming against the church in the final age of history. That is Satan. That is the dictator beast, the world leader, if you will, the false prophet, the spiritual leader of the age, and Babylon. Now, I have said that these four forces are uh, resident in every generation since the ascension of Jesus until today. And I believe that they are also growing in intensity from the ascension of Jesus to today. And we have looked at the four views of Revelation. Remember the four views? Historicist, futurist, uh, historicist, preterist, futurist, spiritualist. And I also have said again and again that you can look at all four views, and I believe that all four views could be equally valid. I do. I do. I don't know for sure if the futurist view is going to come true. It may happen. It may not. But nonetheless, you have to understand that these four forces are going to work against you as a faithful Christian until Jesus comes again. Now, moving forward, we got to remember there this, that these four forces, though at times they may look like they're going to win, Guess what? Jesus is coming back, baby. He's coming back. And before he comes back, there's going to be a severe judgment. There's going to be a severe judgment upon the world, a final set of judgments. Now, the book of Revelation calls these the seven bowl judgments. So I've titled this talk in Revelation chapter 15, Here Comes the Boom. Here comes the boom. God's judgment is coming. There is going to be a final cataclysmic end to those who have rejected God's word and God's ways. This is why I bore down so heavily on you young people who are not walking in the ways of God right now in this generation, listening to the mantras of our age instead of the word of God, okay? Because if you follow the mantras of this age, they end in despair. Now, we're going to find, find out about the details of that despair later on in chapter 16 next week, but this week we're going to talk about how God unfurls and what this means for us as Christians today in concerning the last judgment of God upon the world. So let's get into it. Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. Here's what, Paul, here's what John writes. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, emphasis there, for with them the wrath of God, wrath of God, is finished. Okay. John sees a sign in heaven, great and amazing. The words are repeated there, great and amazing, to symbolize that this is bigger than what has come up to this moment in the book of Revelation. Lots of judgment in the book of Revelation. Lots of wrath of God in the book of Revelation. Well, as much as we have seen so far in this study of Revelation, it's nothing compared to what we are about to see. 
So seven angels are given seven plagues, which are the completion of God's wrath. Now, think about the three sets of seven concerning the wrath of God in Revelation. First, we had the seven seals way back, and you can go and look at previous episodes and listen to that. Then we had the seven trumpets, which we just pretty much got done with a few episodes ago on our Revelation series. Now we're talking about the seven bowls. Now, these three sets of seven judgments, um, they happen in succession, but they also happen with increasing severity. And the bowl judgments are the most severe of the three sets. And the bowl judgments show us that the wrath of God gets more severe when we don't initially listen to the previous judgments of God. And now let me unpack this a little bit so that it's more clear for you. There is a succession slash progression of the judgments of God in Revelation. The seven seal judgments, if you remember way back to like episode, I don't know, seven or eight, way back to the, six, uh, to the seven seal judgments. The seven seal judgments basically were the fact that God, Christ is coming to pronounce the gospel. The gospel divides men and women. This creates a lot of civil unrest between those who are with Christ and those who are not. Throughout human history, those who are with Christ, those who are not have always been at odds with each other. Most of the time, those who are, are, who are apart from Christ are at odds with those who are in Christ. And Jesus himself said, I've come to divide households, families, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers. Love for Christ will ultimately upend a lot of family alliances. And this has happened throughout human history. It's also upended a lot of national alliances, a lot of country alliances throughout human history. So the seven seals were talking about that. And the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You can go back and listen to that. Then the seven trumpets. God's punishment upon the nations who are persecuting God's people. And they are all limited. If you remember the seven sealed, the seven trumpet judgments, they're all limited to one third of the earth. There's a limitation. One third of the earth is affected. One third of the seas, one third of the streams. Now we're at the seven bold judgments in Revelation chapter 16. They're going to come. And these unleash the wrath of God upon the unrepentant. And there's no limit. There's no one third of the earth. It's just the whole earth. And the church is out of the picture. So the church is not affected by this last final set of judgments that are to come upon the earth. Now, you might ask this question, well, where is the church? Well, it depends on your view. If you're a futurist, the church is long gone in heaven. They've been there for about seven, seven years. If you're a historist, the church is those who hold faithful to God in spite of uh, the corrupt Christianity that's out there. Uh, if you're a spiritualist, these are the true followers as opposed to the false followers. And God's protective hand is upon them. If you're a preterist, these are those who believe the gospel as opposed to those who reject the gospel uh, in the first century. So in the first two sets of judgments, I want you to remember this. They were the deterioration of a world that is rejecting Christ. They are the, the deterioration, key word, the two first sets of judgments. The third set of judgment talks about the complete destruction. So we move from deterioration to those who reject, uh, for those who reject Christ to the destruction of those who reject Christ. In other words, just building a case here, when we get to the bowls, we're talking about it's over. God's wrath is finally unleashed upon the world. This is what Revelation teaches us. A final judgment, just judgment, is coming. Now, let's talk about bowls, because that's what these judgments are, seven bowl judgments. Now, we've talked about uh, bowls in Revelation 5, 8, and in Revelation 8 before, and what happens is we find out that according to Revelation's passages earlier, bowls hold incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Revelation 5, 8 says this, uh, that there were golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And what we saw also in previous episodes was that God holds the prayers of his saints as incense in heaven, and then unleashes judgment in response to the prayers. 
So here's how it goes. God's true church is persecuted. Persecuted by how? The state. Persecuted by who? The state. Persecuted by the state. Persecuted by the false church. Persecuted by a corrupted church. Persecuted by false believers, false prophets. Persecuted by the nations who reject Christ. They pray. They pray, God, save us. They pray, God, deliver us. They pray, God, how long will you hold back your judgment? Don't you see us dying here? Don't you see us losing our rights? Right? And so we see this today, not in America, but we do see it overseas, where Christians are persecuted, blown up, chased out of town, deprived rights, put, treated as second-class citizens. Today in Egypt, treated, treated as complete second-class citizens. And they pray, they pray, God, save us. Well, how does God save his people? How does God save? He saves his people, according to the book of Revelation, by turning over those bowls from prayers into judgments. The, bowl, the prayers come up, God holds them, and then at some point, God unleashes them and pours out the prayers of the saints as judgments upon the wicked. Understand this, Christian. I'm pointing to something here. You've got to listen. Understand, Christian, that God's wrath, according to Scripture, is sometimes the consequences of sin or national policy or church policy and practice that have hurt God's people. This speaks to a common question that skeptics have. Why is there so much evil in the world? If God is so good, why is there so much evil? There is evil because we are evil. We rejected God's rule and authority. So we decided to become our own gods, the original temptation of Adam and Eve, was to kind of become our own gods, listen to the serpent, follow his dictate for living instead of God's word. And then we incurred upon us the knowledge of good and evil. Now we know evil because we rejected God. And many times what we fail to understand is that a lot of the evil, a lot of the suffering, a lot of the things that we blame God for is really our fault. Our sins are coming home to roost. Our own foolish decisions upend our own lives. Then the funny thing about it is, and this is what really frustrates me as a pastor, is that people experience the consequences of their own actions, but then they blame God. Or they look at people who are overseas, like in third world countries, and they say, why are they suffering? Well, you don't really know the context. You don't really know what was going on over there and overseas. I've been overseas. I've seen what's going on, and I've heard from pastors in those countries, and those pastors will tell you what the problem is. The problem is that not that God is just saying, I hate these people. I'm going to make them live in poverty forever. No, the pastors that I've talked to have always talked about the same thing. There's injustice between man and his fellow man. There is mistreatment of one another. There are corrupt governments, corrupt politicians, corrupt fascists, dictators who line their pockets and don't care for the people. You say, well, why does God allow it? God is not a heavenly handmaiden. God is not a heavenly maid who comes in and cleans up every mess as soon as it's made. He does not do that. He is the Lord of the universe. He gave us rule, authority, and dominion over the world, and we abdicated that responsibility and followed the kingdom of darkness, and now we are experiencing the results. The point that I'm trying to make is don't blame God for the things that humankind does. Don't blame God for the wrath that comes upon them because of their own foolishness in disobeying God. This is also speaking to growing up. Like, you know, you're going to do all these things. You're going to have sex outside of marriage. You're going to live like a perpetual adolescence. Then you're going to get into your 40s, 45-year-old age, and you're going to say, oh, why is my life so hard? God must not be real. No, you live like an idiot for 25 years. You live like a fool. Wake up. Do what is right, and it will, it will go well for you. So anyway, back to the point. Who are the four enemies, by the way? When we talk about the enemies of God, well, remember back to the four views? The historicist, preterist, futurist, spiritualist? 
Well, each of those four views has a particular enemy. So for the, for the historist, the enemy is the corrupt Roman Empire for the first 1,200 years of human history. And then for 12, from 1,200 A.D. until about you know, 1,700 A.D., the historist sees the Holy Roman Church as the enemy of God's people. Nothing against present-day Catholics. Love you, present-day Catholics. But that's how the historicist views Revelation. Uh, the preterist. The preterist sees apostate Jerusalem as the enemy of God's people, and the, God, and the wrath of God comes upon the apostate Jews who do not receive Christ. Okay? The futurist sees the coming one world leader or the coming one world government as the enemies of God's people. And the spiritualist says anti, any anti-Christian powers of any age are the enemies of God's people. So I just want to keep that in mind because I'm not going to go over the specifics of how each view handles each plague going forward. I, I really want to move on from that. And I want to just talk about general principles about how God handles human history and what we need to know about the wrath of God. So let's, let's talk about verse 2. Let's move on. And he says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And fire there speaks to the fact that there's been um, God's judgment. God's judgment has happened. So the mingled fire with the sea of glass is God's judgment has subsided. All right? And also, those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So what does John see? He sees a sea of glass mingled with fire. That is that there is a sea of glass with uh, there's the image of peace. When you think about a sea of glass, you got to see image of peace and then fire, image of judgment. These things go together, but they go together for different people. Now, when we read Revelation 15 and next week 16, we're going to find a ton of Old Testament imagery in these two chapters. All of that imagery comes from one particular moment in redemption's story for the people of Israel. And I'm talking specifically about Exodus, the Exodus of Israel. If you remember Exodus, Israel is enslaved to the Egyptians. They cry out to God because they are also suffering unjustly under Pharaoh, being enslaved by the powers of the world. And God answers after 400 years. He answers their cries. So they waited a long time to. He answers their cries. He sends Moses. Moses through plagues. And remember the plagues, things like darkness, things like hail, things like uh, the cattle are diseased, the locust, um, the Niles turn to blood. All those plagues come upon Egypt. And through the plagues, God delivers his people. All that imagery of Exodus chapters 5 to 15 are, are loaded on to Revelation chapter 15 and 16. Now, this is really cool because it's so important for how we read Revelation. Do you know what it's saying to us? It's saying this. Revelation teaches the church to read their present story through the lens of Holy Scripture's stories so that we persevere in faith. At times, we're going to feel like those suffering Israelites. But guess what? God is going to come and set us free and deliver us and give us the power to be his people set free from the powers of the world. The story of Exodus, Christian, is your story. The story of Exodus is your story. Just as God heard his people in ancient Israel, uh, in ancient Egypt, he will hear you where you are, so don't stop praying. Now, this also means that though the pharaohs of this age look like they're in charge, they actually are all subject to the authority of God. He is the final authority. He is sovereign. So, Christian, that means that in America, when you see our Congress passing laws that are anti-Christian, which, by the way, is happening right now, there was an equality bill that just passed the House. This equality bill is going to start turning up the heat on religious freedom. Mark my words. 
I don't think it's going to get through the Senate. I don't think it's going to get signed by the president, but it's going uh, to eventually, I think, be law. I think it's inevitable. I don't think it's going to happen right now, but maybe sometime later. And this equality law is actually aimed at religious freedom. All the guys that I read say this, it doesn't look like it's a healthy law for Christians, for faithful, Bible-believing Christians. Okay, But when we see that happen, what should we do? Should we throw our hands up in the air and fall to pieces? No, we should know that our God is sovereign over the powers of our country. That God is sovereign over Congress and the Senate and the President. And, and so when we see also churches in Africa are bombed, in China, when we see Christians are asked to replace the cross with pictures of President Xi or President Mao, uh, Chairman Mao, uh, that we see these persecutions, these subtle forms of persecutions coming upon the church. We do not give up praying because we know that eventually the Lord will come just as the Lord came for the Israelites who were enslaved under Pharaoh's domain. Remember, they lived there for 400 years. Could you imagine being 350 years in? You might be thinking, it will never happen. We'll never be free. What, what's the point? But that story is for you and for me to remember. No, there is a point. There is a final just judgment coming upon the godless leadership and authorities of the world. And those who are faithful to God will experience liberation and vindication and deliverance through the power of God. Notice also in verse 2 that John sees those who conquered the beast and in the image. Now, how did they conquer? Well, there's a good case to be made that they conquered through death, through martyrdom. And really, when you think about it, when you die as you will eventually do. If you die in Christ, you win. You ever think about this? Like death for a Christian is crossing the finish line. That's why when I go to a Christian funeral, it's never nearly as depressing as when I go to a young kid who's committed suicide or someone who's outside of Christ who has died fatally or someone who's overdosed on drugs and they didn't know Christ. When I go to a Christian's funeral and I know that that person was Christian, they died. It's almost like kind of like it's mournful, but it's not the same. There's happiness there because we know that person completed their race. We even say that. They finished their race. Well, what, how do you finish a race? You win. You cross the finish line. And Paul talks about this. Run your race. Finish your race. And I have to finish my race. You have to finish your race. But when you die as a Christian, you do not suffer anymore. You do not have to deal with sin anymore. You don't have to deal with temptation anymore. And you don't have to deal with the powers of this, deal with the powers of this age anymore. You are in the presence of, a, of God in perfect peace and harmony for eternity. Joy, that's conquering, in my opinion. That's, that's conquering, true conquering. So there's a good chance that they conquered through death. They, they, that perse persecution became so severe, and this happens today in some spots in the world, and ultimately at the end of the age, I believe it will happen globally, that true Christians will be put to death globally. They will, be su they will suffer so much persecution, they will be just killed because of the intolerance of God's people. That is on the rise subtly now and more visibly later. So we may have to die for our faith. Are we ready for that? If you're in Christ, you're ready for that. Note the sea of glass is mentioned here, sea of glass. Now, what you have to see is this is an image of a completely stilled body of water. I have an image of the Sea of Galilee because I was there. Can we put this full screen? I was there last year, February. This is the Sea of Galilee. Just look at the waters. It, and it, the picture doesn't do it justice, actually. It was so calm. It was like a sheer pane of glass. And it was so peaceful. And we, were, and we were traveling by boat over the Sea of Galilee and listening to worship music. It was one of the most amazing, most moving experiences ever. By the way, if you're at Waters Church, we are planning to take a, a group of you to Israel in February 2021. So keep on the lookout for that. But anyway, the sea um, 
in biblical terminology, is an image of the chaos of the world, like a churning sea, the waves, the turmoil of a sea. This is an image of chaos and sin and evil. Well, now those who conquered are standing beside a calmed sea, a sea of glass, meaning that the powers of sin have been quenched. They have been beaten once and for all, conquered once and for all for God's people. How does this happen? Ultimately through death. But I believe it can happen progressively through sanctification by the Holy Spirit as we grow more and more into the image of Jesus Christ as God grows us as his people. Then it says in verse 3, listen, they sing the song of Moses. These are the people who conquered through death or martyrdom or just, you know, conquered as being protected by God's people. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb. Again, a lot of imagery from Exodus 15. And they say, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the God, o Lord God Almighty, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for, you are right, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Again, tons of Exodus 15 imagery. Why? Because how is Israel finally delivered from Egypt? Through the Red Sea. They go through the sea. Remember that. They go through the sea. They're on the other side of the sea. Pharaoh's army drowned in the sea. Then the sea's calm. Pharaoh's army's dead. What you have in Revelation is, Revelation is screaming at the church today saying, hey, in the midst of your persecution, suffering, calamities, troubles, tribulations, in the midst of all that, do not lose hope because God will one day put to death all the enemies that face you. All the trouble that comes against you will one day be quenched, squelched, through the power of the sovereign God of the universe who loves you and has a plan for you. Notice that they are singing the song of Moses. They sang after the Red Sea moment. Miriam in Exodus 15, she takes out the tambourine and she leads all the women. They start singing. Well, this is, again, this is imagery that we are supposed to look to to say, hey, we are going to worship in eternity. Why? Because we're going to be full of joy. That's when people sing. They sing when they're full of joy. And so notice the song is singing about God's greatness. And, and it's, it's an important point because here's what the true church does. The true church is more preoccupied with God's glory than they are with the judgment of the wicked. So we don't sing because our enemies are finally once and for all put down. We don't sing for the toppling of governments who are anti-Christian. We sing about God's glory. And a true Christian loves the glory of God. A true Christian loves God more than anything. And so you will sing, but you will sing about him. He will be your fullest enjoyment. Second, the song focuses on fearing God. Verse 4 says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? The true church does not fear, listen, Pharaoh or the beasts or the false prophets or world leaders or the powers of this age or the equality bill that just passed Congress. The true Christian does not fear subtle Christian hostilities in the culture that we live in today. The true Christian fears God. And that means that we reverence him. That means that he is our truest honor. He is our truest Lord. We don't fear them. Why? Because our fear of God is greater than our fear of them. Which brings me to another point, by the way. There are some Christians that are overwhelmingly in love with God's judgment upon the wicked. And I got to talk to you guys for a minute because I, please don't understand. Please don't misunderstand me. When we talk about the judgment of God, we should not talk about it in a way that kind of brings a smile to our face. Like, we shouldn't be like, I can't wait to see those people finally get it. Like, that's not, that's not healthy Christianity. I used to have a lady that used to come up to me almost every day, uh, every service, at the end of the service, and she would say, don't you think it's time for God to judge America? Don't you think it's time for God? I'm so sick of seeing all these evils in America. Don't you think it's time for God to judge? He should just judge. 
And I would say, well, if he judges America, then, you know, let us just be gracious and, and thankful that his grace covers us because we deserve judgment. Anyway, moving on. Uh, verse 5, it says this, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. Okay. Notice the words. The sanctuary, the tent of witness in heaven was open. This is an image of the uh, original tent that Moses erected in the wilderness once Israel was delivered from Egypt. So they get delivered through the Red Sea. They sing a song. Then they go out into the wilderness. They get the law. And then God gives Moses the plans for the tabernacle. Not temple. Tabernacle. The temple comes later. The temple is made of stone. The tabernacle is made of wood and uh, um, canvas. Uh, and so Moses erects this tabernacle, and he uh, puts in the tabernacle an inner tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And the word sanctuary here in the Greek, in verse 5, is naos. Naos in Greek always refers to the Holy of Holies, not the general tabernacle. So what, what John sees in heaven is the inner Holy of Holies is opened. And now here's what you got to look at. Stay with me for a moment. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, that tabernacle has been opened to God's people, but that's not what's happening here in Revelation 15 at the final judgment. Mm -mm. What's happening here is that inner holy of holies is being opened, not for people to come in, but for judgment to come out. Because look at verse 6, and out of the inner holy of holies, out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sash around the chest. So the presence of God is open to the world to bring judgment. This is a hugely important theological point, Christian. The presence of God is judgment for the sinner. The presence of God is not happy for the unrepentant. Do you understand that? Do you understand that God's presence, remember when Adam and Eve sin, God comes into the garden, they go running from God. Why? Because his presence brought conviction, brought uneasiness, brought fear, brought, brought uh, shame and guilt, and they ran. The presence of God is not a happy place for the unrepentant. This is why heaven will be miserable for those who have not Christ. Heaven will be miserable. You know, a great theologian once said it like this, and you're going to have to really love theology to appreciate this quote, but he said, this is what hell is. Hell is living, in the etern living eternally in the presence of God without a mediator. Hell, listen to that again. Hell is living in the presence of God eternally without a mediator. What is heaven then? Heaven is living eternally in the presence of God with a mediator. A mediator is the person who goes between. A mediator is someone who brings peace between two parties. Who is that mediator? It is Christ. Hell is living. So again, when the sanctuary opens, hell is unleashed because the presence of God goes out into the world. Sometimes the wrath of God is a visible presence, is a visible sign. I'm sorry. Sometimes the destructions of the world are the wrath of God, which is a visible representation of his presence. Now that should blow your theology away. That should really like interest you if you're into theology because it's true though. The presence of God is not a happy place for those who are unrepentant and hate God. All right, moving on. We got to get through this, right? Verse seven. 
And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels. Remember, the four living creatures are the four flaming seraphim. These are from Ezekiel and Revelation chapter 4. So they, one of the four living creatures, the, the highest seraphim of heaven's order, gives to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Please note, the smoke from the glory of God and from his power... Uh, were filled the sanctuary, and because of this, verse 8 says, no one could enter the sanctuary. Old Testament imagery all over this passage. You have to see it from the Old Testament. Scripture interprets Scripture. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, when the temple is erected, here's what happens. When the temple is finally finished, the tabernacle, the, 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 the canvas and, and, and wood stake tabernacle in the wilderness that was movable. Well, it says this, the cloud, Exodus, 30, 44, Exodus 40, verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. What am I pressing in on this for? Because who was the mediator in Israel's day? Moses. Moses was the mediator in the wilderness for Israel. When God comes down on the mountain, the people say, don't let God come near us anymore. We're scared of this guy. You go up there and mediate for us. And he does. He goes up to the mountain and mediates for them. Well, here when the tabernacle is erected, Moses can't even enter in to mediate for God's people. Why? Why? Because there is no mediation for the wrath of God. Once, once the wrath of God, now going back to Revelation 15, once the wrath of God is finally unveiled upon the entire earth at the end of the age, listen to me very carefully, there is no stopping it. No one goes in to mediate. No one goes in to, to hold it off. What I'm trying to tell you is there is coming an unavoidable and irreversible just judgment of God upon the wicked of the earth. And that is what Revelation chapter 15 is teaching us. And why is this so important? Because we live in a world that is growing more and more hostile to the things of God, more and more hostile to the people of God, and we do not give up. And we do not throw our hands up in the air. And we do not moan and weep and woe is me us. Woe is us. Whatever the phrase is there. We don't do that. Why? Because we know that God's just judgment is coming. It's coming upon the wicked. Yes, people will suffer who have rejected Christ. So a couple of lessons and then we're done. Lesson number one, the wrath of God is a thing. The wrath of God is a thing. And I feel like I have to say things like this today. I have to say things like this because I think that the modern American church has forgotten that the wrath of God is a thing. It is actually a real thing that's going to happen and is happening. Right now, we're experiencing passive wrath. You know what passive wrath is? Passive wrath is you get drunk, you sleep with someone you don't know, you get, you get a disease. That disease is a passive wrath for doing life outside of God's will. That's passive wrath. Okay, or passive wrath is you steal stuff that doesn't belong to you. The police come, they arrest you, they put you in jail. That's passive wrath, right? God is using civil government to institute judgment for your disobedience to his law. Passive wrath. Okay, there is something called active wrath. And Revelation 15 is talking about the active wrath. Passive wrath has got nothing on the active wrath. So you have to realize that the judgment of God will come and you need a mediator if you are outside of his family. You need Christ to avoid the wrath of God. We are living in a day and age where cool church avoids any topics concerning hell, judgment, sin, righteousness. We're living in an age where the liberal left-leaning church only talks about income inequality 
fairness and men and women basically being the same. Or where the right-wing church talks about patriotism and morality, but doesn't really talk about righteousness, sin, and judgment for all people. We need to wake up to the fact that there is a wrath coming upon those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, right, left, and center. If you are not in Christ, you will experience the wrath of God. Now, this has been a problem for the church since like the early 1900s. We've always had a problem with God being a judge, God being a God of wrath. Richard Neighbor, who wrote a great book about uh, Christianity in the 1900s, he actually once eviscerated the liberal posture of some churches who, avoid, who avoided talking about the judgment and wrath of God. He said this, I love this quote. He said, today it's a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's like, the con- that's like the mantra of our age. Listen to the modern worship songs. They all sing about the love of God, but they don't sing about the just wrath of God. In the, in the older uh, you know, 17th, 16th, 18th century hymns, they constantly talked about being saved from the wrath of God. Do you know who you were saved from when you were saved in Christ? You were actually saved from God. Think about Noah. Noah was saved by God from God. Who sent the flood in Noah's day? Not Satan, God. God sent the flood. The flood was the symbol of the wrath of God. And that flood was a symbol of the fire that is supposed to come later in creation, at the end of this age. You are saved in Christ, by Christ, from the wrath of God. We have to remember, get our theology right. About seven years ago, the wrath of God became a point of controversy uh, in the Presbyterian church because there was a guy in the Presbyterian church named Keith Getty and Stuart, two guys named Keith Getty and Stuart Townshend, Townsend, Townen, sorry, who wrote a song, very popular Christian modern worship hymn called In Christ Alone. We sing it here at Waters Church. Well, they had a line in there that said, till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, the Presbyterian council brought them in and said, listen, you can't be putting wrath of God in modern Christian songs. It's too heavy. And they wanted to say, wanted them to substitute that line for, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. So instead of, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, it says, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Well, the authors of the hymn said, no, we're not changing anything. We know our theology. We know what God has done for us in Christ. He has saved us from his wrath. And so they stood their ground and they passed the hymn and they put it into their congregational singing uh, books. And uh, today, even cool churches like us, they sing this song. Uh, it's just the fact that we, we tend to forget that God is a God of wrath. The wrath of God is a thing. Uh, Tertullian, this is nothing new, by the way. In the second century, a, a great uh, historical theologian in the second century called out the false teachers of his day and said that you have, or at least you think you have, discovered a better God, one who is neither offended nor angry nor inflicts punishment, who has no fire warming up in hell and no outer darkness wherein there is shuddering and gnashing of teeth. He is merely kind. <laughs> I mean, Tertullian said this in the second century. He was spot on. We, we tend to forget this, and we need to remember this. We need teaching of the Bible today more than ever before because there is such a thing as the wrath of God, and we are saved from the wrath of God through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who bore the wrath of God on the cross for those who are in him. You are either in Christ or you are out of Christ. And if you are out of Christ, you are bearing the wrath of God for yourself. Secondly, last lesson, and I only have two. A great separation is coming. A great separation is coming. Jesus talked a lot about this. There's going to be a separation between the wicked and the good. The wicked are those who reject Christ. The good are those who receive him. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. Separation. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
Matthew 13, 41, the Jesus, Jesus says this, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Luke 13, 28, Jesus says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. There is a separation coming between the wicked and the good, the sinner and the just or the justified, those who are in Christ. Matthew 25, 34, before him all will be gathered the nations, or before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. A great separation is coming. Why do I bear down on this? Do you know why I bear down on this? Because we live in a culture where we value things like diversity, unity, inclusion, plurality, equality, fairness. And many ways, these terms are are bastardized to create this one world ideal that does not exist and will never exist. Like diversity is not in heaven. There is a certain form of diversity in heaven. There's, there's a diversity of nations and ethnicities, but there's no religious diversity in heaven. Everybody in heaven worships Jesus, period. If you don't worship Jesus, you're not in heaven, period. That's how Revelation unpacks it. Equality. Guess what? There's no equality in heaven. I know this sounds like so counter-cultural, but it's true. There's no equality. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Not everybody gets a participation trophy in heaven. We don't all get the same trophies. We get different trophies based on what we did, different crowns, different rewards based on what we did. The question is, what are you doing with what God has given you? Fairness. We talk about fairness in this society. This is a lot of reasons why I think the younger generation is failing to grow up because they're looking for fairness. They're looking for equality. They're looking for all these things to happen in the world before they get busy doing something. And that's because they've been coddled from teenagehood onward into thinking that everybody gets everything equal because parents paved the way for that to happen while they were growing up. And that is not true. It's not even theologically accurate. Fairness in the Bible. Fairness according to Scripture. Fairness theologically is we all get cast into hell. That's fairness. We all get what we deserve. We all get the punishment we deserve for our sins. The cross is not fair. The cross is grace. The cross is God not giving us what we deserve. The cross is not giving us what is fair. The cross is giving us what Jesus deserved. The cross is giving us the great exchange, giving Jesus what we deserved and giving us what Jesus had. Life with God in eternity, in his presence, in fullness of joy. This is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Otherwise, the cross was pointless, friend. Otherwise, the cross is pointless. Romans 2, 6, 8 says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The wrath of God is a thing. You avoid the wrath of God by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a great separation is coming. I don't want you out. I want you in. Come to Christ. Surrender your life. He will come into your heart. He will change you from the inside out and make you a brand new person. Do it now before the boom comes. Well, that's our episode. I hope that you have enjoyed it. It's been a wonderful uh, chance for me to be back teaching Revelation. I've really missed this. I can't wait to get into Revelation 16 with you next week. I will see you. Enjoy Memorial Day, but come back Wednesday live at noon. I will see you then. This was The Deep End. 
Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.